Welcome to the Vaccination Station, a podcast about vaccines, science, medicine, and critical thinking. My name is Dave, and today I'm interviewing Dorrit Rubenstein-Rice, professor at UC Hastings Law. Really great to have you here, Dorrit. Admirer of your work for a long time. Great to be here, and I love your page. Thank you. Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? I have two kids and I got into vaccine activism as a parent, just uh, commenting on social media. Uh, I have a cat somewhere in the background and I'm a fantasy fan. I very much love Doctor Who, Uh, read fantasy when I can get it. Where did you study? And what are your qualifications? So I did my undergraduate. So I'm from Israel originally, as you can probably hear. Uh, I did my undergraduate in law and political science in the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. In Israel, like in uh, Europe, I'm not sure about Australia, uh, law is an undergraduate degree. So I got my undergraduate in law and political science in Israel. Then I came to the US for my PhD in uh, Berkeley in jurisprudence and social policy. I did my PhD there. If it's of interest, it was about agency accountability in telecommunication and electricity. So nothing to do with vaccines. And then I started teaching in a law school in UC Hastings. And initially my writing was all about public law, public administration, public law. And so then I stumbled onto vaccines. What is your field of expertise from a professional perspective? For the last five years, I've been writing about law and policy related to vaccines. My PhD is in public administration, public law, and I teach administrative law. I teach torts. I also teach public health. But again, in the last five years, all my writings is, are about uh, law and policy about vaccines. How did you become interested in law as a career? I initially, so I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. and one of my uncles said, if you know you're interested in social sciences, which I was, and you're not sure which, law is a good middle area. Uh, And I started it and I really fell in love. I mean, I found law school exciting, interesting, and especially together with political science, that gives you a view of the interaction between politics and law. What advice would you give to anyone who is considering a career in law? I would start by asking them why, what, what interests you. So people come to law from different directions. In my school, my school is a public school that's in a very um, liberal city. A lot of my students come there because they really want to do social justice work. The advice I would give them is very different from the advice I'd give someone who uh, is really excited about litigation, cor- uh, corporate litigation. Uh, or uh, wants to do environmental law. We do have a lot of environmental law students. Um, so it really depends. The, when, I do, when I sit down with students and, and we discuss their interests, we usually start with, what are you interested in? And it's fine if you don't know yet, but it really is very specific. Law is very broad. What is tort law? In fact, what, what's even a tort? So I teach tort law. I've written in it some, but... It's not my main expertise right now. Tort is the civil, uh, a set of civil rules that handle injury claims between individuals or corporations for that matter, in the individual writ large. It's a set of uh, doctrines, statutes, and so forth that say when one person is claiming that another person harmed them, how do we decide whether the defendant owes the plaintiff money. As far as I've been able to gather, you are actually internationally recognized as a leading scholar on legal issues related to vaccination. I don't know. I I just don't know what the standard there is. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> that's, that's true. You might be the only one. <laughs> but how did you become interested in the relationship between vaccines, law, and policy? Because I understand policy is a critical area yes. for you. So I started, I got into vaccines as a parent. I was reading uh, parenting materials online and I fell in love with a couple of science-based blogs. Uh, and then one of them wrote an article about MMR responding to anti-vaccine claims. And someone wrote an anti-vaccine comment. I've, it did not occur to me at that point that there was an anti-vaccine movement. I was that unaware. So I started reading more about uh, vaccine arguments. Uh, and initially I was looking at it completely as a parent as a, this is interesting, I've never heard of it. Maybe there's something there, maybe I should consider it. Although I, I admit that pretty quickly, once I started looking at the claim, the anti-vaccine claims looked problematic. But again, I was looking at it from the point of view of parents should comment, parents who are pro-vaccine should speak up. Then I met one of my colleagues who is a mentor of mine, a 30 year long professor of health law. And he helped me set up my tort class. And I told him, I got into this new thing about vaccine and it's really interesting. And we started talking and he said, you know, every time I teach health law, I teach about vaccines. And we started discussing the connection between what I was doing online and what he was teaching in class. And I said, this is really interesting. Let's do a panel. Let's do an academic panel, combining what we know, what I'm seeing on social media and what you are seeing in, in, in the literature. So we, that was the first thing I did legally. We organized the panel and we wanted to add a doctor. And my reading online included reading about Dr. Paul Offit. So out of the blue, I emailed him, doesn't know me from anyone, I'm a nobody. Uh, I emailed him and say, we want to put up a panel about law and vaccines. We're looking for a local expert. Do you know anyone? And he was super nice. I mean, he answered and said, I don't actually know necessarily the person online, but here's a local activist that could help you. And, and he, he directed me just to the right person. So, and then he added, I'm also coming to your area. I'm giving a grand rounds. Why don't you come and introduce yourself? So I came and it was really interesting. And, and I listened to his talk and it was fascinating. He talked about the law. And then after I, I, I went back and I thought about the talk, I wrote to him an email that said, I really appreciated the talk. I learned a lot. But here are three things I think you might, must have gotten wrong. Now, you expect that someone will, who has been doing this for years will respond not necessarily very favorably. He responded with, thank you, that's really helpful. So you have someone who's an ex, a non-expert in vaccine and he takes seriously, uh, that was encouraging. Then I was still active online and Dr. Art Kaplan wrote an article saying there should be tort liability for uh, if you don't vaccinate. I teach tort. I read it and I said, maybe, but I think he, some of the, the legal arguments are wrong. But before I could do anything with that, Mary Holland, who is an anti-vaccine lawyer, wrote a response. And again, I teach tort. There are reasons to argue that there shouldn't be tort liability in that situation. Her article wasn't about that. It was all about anti-vaccine tropes. And I read it and I say, well, you know, you could make an argument that there shouldn't be liability, but this isn't it. This is an anti-vaccine screed. So I was so upset that, and I said, I know this stuff. I wrote an answer to her. And then I emailed the blog, which was the Petri Flom uh, Harvard Bill of Health blog and said, I wrote this response to her. Uh, will you carry it? And they said, yes, sure. So they published my short piece about why there should be tort liability for vaccine. And then I sat and thought, well, maybe turn it into a long law review. And that was my first law review about vaccines and the law. The second one was what we did as a panel with, a with my colleague, Professor Rob Schwartz. Uh, that was a longer article about the legal framework surrounding vaccines. So I started writing more about the topic. And since I started writing, and I think there was a need and California was moving towards tightening its exemption law. I got involved in the struggle around SB 277. Basically, it was one thing led to another. Yeah, it, it's funny how the whole vax anti-vax debate has a way of drawing you in. You, you start yes. off with one small thing and it snowballs and you think, oh, I'll just do a little bit more here or, or I'll, I'll just do some more reading here. And, exactly. and before you know it, it becomes quite compulsive. 
Um, yeah, I, I'm like that for anti-vaxxers and pro-vaxxers. But at least part of this is, and I think different people do it differently, but at least part of what pulled me more in was a pushback. Uh, the anti-vaccine people push back very hard. And some people draw back. And my response was, no, you're not going to kick me out of this. So there was a little bit of that too. You are now a regular contributor to several blogs and websites, which is how I, I first came across your work. I've posted once in science-based medicine, Dr. Gorski. Oh, okay. He's about citing other people. So he sometimes okay. cites my work on, on Skeptical Raptor, but his blog, I think, there, I think it's very rare for him to have any guest uh, bloggers. Right, yep. Uh, and I love his blog, yeah. But, but you have contributed to Skeptical Raptor. Yes. How did you become involved with, with Skeprap then? I think the first time was, I was looking, I, I wrote a piece that was, I, I don't remember what the first article was, but I wrote a piece that I figured was not quite a good fit. So at that point I've written a little bit for a shot of prevention, but I wrote a piece that was more response to anti-vaccine claims and I figured that's not quite a good fit. And I was asking, would anyone carry my piece? And he said, I'd be happy to. Uh, and he, he's a really good person to work with. He's fast, he, he works through my articles. He doesn't catch all my mistakes, but uh, he, he does a second editing and he adds a link. And, and he's, he's basically willing to publish anything I'm willing to uh, publish there. So it started with his willingness to publish a first article. And I think, it, I think it's a good partnership for both of us. It gives him more content and like working with him. How has social media affected the way that you communicate your knowledge and ideas? Because it's a very different world to academia. Yeah. I think I've learned a lot about communicating, communicating law to non-lawyers through the discussion of social media. Because when you communicate on vaccines and social media, you, you're not speaking to lawyers. You're also not speaking to health people most of the time. So you have to learn to speak in a way that's accessible. Uh, as a law professor, I probably talk too much and, and too long. Uh, I think that we tend to do that. But I think I've learned to simplify and uh, make it more accessible. And I'm working on shorter. Still not there, but working on shorter. So I, I've learned a lot. And I will say also that one of the things that you get in vaccine discussion when you discuss with anti-vaccine people is you actually learn, you have to, to stay on top of what you're saying. Anti-vaccine people will notice any inaccuracy and push on it. You need to know what the material, you need to know their claims and you need to know what's going on and you need to think about what you're saying. I've learned a lot from them. Let's talk about policy. In fact, uh, probably the most significant vaccine policy in the US over the last few decades. Mm -hmm. In 1986, Ronald Reagan signed the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, the NCVIA. Yes. What is that act and what prompted its creation? The act did a number of things. The act was, the immediate impetus was uh, manufacturers were leaving the market in response to growth in lawsuits. Uh, the growth in lawsuits were related to concerns about the DTP vaccine, following a TV show that suggested a link to brain damage, a link that was since disproved. There, were a dramatic, there was a dramatic increase in lawsuits against vaccine manufacturers, and they simply were leaving the market. They weren't, they weren't going to Congress and say, do this or we'll stop, they just left. There were several attempts before the act to create a compensation scheme. In this case, there was the pressure from the manufacturers. There was support from the American Academy of Pediatrics. There was concerns from public health that will run out of DTP vaccine because manufacturers were really leaving the market one by one. And a new actor on the scene, a new anti-vaccine organization, first Dissatisfied Spread Together, DPT, and then the National Vaccine Information Center, also supported the act and their concern was twofold. They were concerned that the courts were not a good system to compensate people with vaccine harms because it was hard to win those cases. The burden was very high. 
and they were concerned that there was, wasn't enough oversight of the vaccine system. So the act did a number of things. The big one, the one they probably have in mind, was creating a, a no-fault compensation program to compensate for vaccine injuries in the United States. The second one was creating the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, BEARS, where anyone can report a vaccine harm. The third one, there, there are more than what I'm saying, but I think these are the major ones for us. The third one was a creating an informed consent mechanism, creating materials that the Secretary of Health will prepare and that every doctor needs to give parents before vaccinating. That's the vaccine information statement we now use. And finally, it created several uh, advisory committees to oversee vaccine safety. A major problem at this time was pressure from lawsuits against manufacturers over yes. alleged yes. vaccine injuries. This touches on a, an issue that I'll, I'll get to a bit later about <clears throat> whether or not the courts are actually a legitimate place for this type of science to be argued. Mm -hmm. What I want to know is, at the time this act was created, how were these cases being proved? And, and were there many of them, or was it just a potential threat of them? Or what was, what was the main issue? So, there's, so, first of all, there was a real increase in the number of lawsuits. They went dramatically up. These were, most of the time, negligence lawsuits. Sorry, not negligence. Design defect lawsuits. So the argument was the manufacturers were selling a vaccine whose dangers outweigh the risk and which was more dangerous than the consumer expected, more dangerous than was known. These are hard to win because the vaccine is approved on the basis that its benefits outweigh its risk. Diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis are dangerous diseases. So showing that the design was too dangerous was hard. However, on the side of the plaintiff was the fact that they were usually coming forward with children who were, had very real and deep disabilities, very sympathetic plaintiff, and on the other hand were pharmaceutical companies who were not very sympathetic defendants. So most of the time these lawsuits lost. In some cases they won. The other set of lawsuits that we saw was claims of lack of warning around oral polio vaccines. So those were not related to the DTP lawsuits, but were also happening, uh, adding pressure on, on vaccines. So in both cases, these were not easy, easy claims to win. Many of them lost, but if one claim won in a jury, that was usually a very a seriously disabled child, a million dollars award. And even cases that lost in the United States, we don't have the loser pay system. So the companies had to pay the litigation costs. That was costly. And vaccines are not a high profit area. They are stable profits in normal times. You have the whole cohort gets them, usually or close enough, but they're not a high profit. The profit margin is pretty low. So as we both know, anti-vaxxers have been very vocal in their opposition to the NCVIA, partly because they argue, well, it, it completely absolves the manufacturers of any liability for their product, and this is absolutely unfair. Um, and then they want the they want the the act repealed. Yes. Now, a couple of questions for you here. Firstly, does it really absolve vaccine manufacturers of all liability? Is it possible to to sue them outside the remit of this act? And secondly. If we were to address the act in some way, could it be repealed or amended in a way that might make everyone happier? You know. So let's start with the first. The first is that there are, the claim that there's complete immunity from liability is simply untrue. There is limited immunity from liability. You can't bring one kind of claim. You can't bring design defect claim, claims that claim that the design is too dangerous. You can bring other claims. For example, you can bring claims that the, the vaccine was manufactured improperly. You can bring claim of lack of warning. You can bring claim of negligence. You can bring claim of fraud. They're just hard to prove, but you can bring them after you went to vaccine court. So for all claims except design defects, the act adds a step. You have to go to the program first and then go. And not only is it not true that, that you can't sue completely, the anti-vaccine people know that because RFK Jr., Robert F. Kennedy Jr., one of their leaders, is currently litigating two claims against the vaccine manufacturers 
based on negligence and fraud. So he knows when he says that there's zero liability, he knows that that's not true because he's involved in litigation. So it's, it's not true. There are protections, but they're limited. I will add that the other side of the protection is that people with real claims get a lot of breaks in the no-fault system. It's much easier to prove that than a civil case. So it's a compromise. Manufacturers get some protection in exchange for compensation being easier. The other question you were asked is about repealing the act. So you can't change the system in a way that will make everybody happy because, and I'm sorry if this sounds too hard, uh, the anti-vaccine people won't be happy with anything except winning cases in a way that hurts the vaccine program. That's what they want. And the public health people won't be happy with that. So you're not going to square that circle. There are reforms that the system needs. I don't think that, they, that the system needs to do away with the program. I think it makes a lot of sense to have a no-fault compensation system for vaccine injuries. And here's why. Vaccines do two things. A, they protect you. B, by creating herd immunity, they protect the public. So they give, create a public good. It's not fair. Let's say one in a million person has a severe reaction to a vaccine. Because the vaccines also benefit the public, it's not fair that that one in a million person has to bear the cost of the harm. But in a court system where you have to show fault, they will. Because you can't show fault. It's not, it's not an effective program, product if it has one in a million. A no-fault system compensates the rare victims without having to show that anyone did anything wrong. Compensate them because they did something that has a public benefit and they shouldn't be left alone to bear the cost. I think that's fair. Compensation of the real vaccine harm should be fast, generous. Cases of doubt should be decided for the plaintiff. And the system does that. I don't think we need to get away with it. It has some things that needs fixing. For example, right now, it has a statute of limitation that's three years for children. I think that should be lengthened because sometimes for children, it takes time for the parents to get everything together. In other cases, in, in, another problem is the program set caps on compensation for death and pain and suffering. That's not unusual. That's the case, for example, in medical malpractice in California, too. But the caps were set in 1980s and not raised since. I think we need to raise them. 250,000 is too low today for a death. So, it's, so I think we need to raise it. So we need to fix this, the system, but I don't think we need to repeal it. So to summarize, the NCVIA limits liability, but does not completely exonerate vaccine manufacturers. It doesn't make them completely immune to prosecution. Yes. It is the first step in a process that you must go through if you want to apply for some form of redress. Mm -hmm. After you have gone through that step, you are free to pursue the vaccine manufacturer legally. Except for design defects. And the vaccine court provides you with a, a greater opportunity to achieve a victory and achieve compensation because as I understand it, the level of proof, the burden of proof is actually quite low. It, the cases used to be determined on the basis of evidence. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I think, I can't remember what year, but at some point it was changed so that cases were determined on the basis of probability. Is that correct? That's not quite. So in civil cases, in, this, in the court system and in the program, the standard for winning is more, pro, more likely than not. It is a probability standard in all civil cases, but probably true in Australia as well. In the program, there's two ways that this is relaxed. And I think that was true from the start, but I'm not totally sure. One way is there's a table of injuries. There's some injuries that are scientifically linked to vaccine. If you have that injury within the time that it would usually happen after a vaccine, causation is presumed. So the government, if it wants to, can try and prove that the vaccine didn't cause the harm, but the default is we assume that the vaccine caused the harm. The other way is you have to show causation, that's off-table injuries. If you're in that category, the standard in regular court would be shows that the science supports the link, in vaccine court, it's enough if you have a plausible theory. So you have to create a theory. Usually it's enough to bring an expert witness willing to, to suggest a theory. And 
you have to show is a theory that makes sense and that doesn't have a lot of evidence against it. So for example, mercury in vaccine causes autism. It's going to fail, not because you can find someone to say that it's plausible, you can, but because there's a lot of evidence against it. But in, if there's not a lot of evidence against it, and if you have a, a plausible theory backed by an, an expert that looks credible, that's enough. You don't have to show the scientific link. But provided you can present a theory mm -hmm. and that theory comes with an explanation of the mechanism and you can you actually have some kind of data to substantiate that, mm -hmm. that is the way you would go about proving the case. Yes. That certainly explains why so many anti-vax cases fail then because they're constantly going on about stuff which has been repeatedly debunked, like yes. the Merosol and yeah. the other, blue shot giving you the flu and this kind of stuff. The other problem they have is that many of their experts are not credible. And it's not that hard to show that uh, when you have an experienced special master that, has, that already knows uh, how these cases work, an uncredible expert doesn't work so well. Yes, that, that's very true. Um, I keep an eye out for cases where anti-vaxxers have submitted their own expert and a relevant professional has debunked them or refuted them in court and shown why they're either unqualified or their argument doesn't hold water. In fact, I found a few cases yeah. where the judge themselves has said, no, you are not actually qualified. You, you don't have the requisite expertise. You don't even have any qualifications in this particular field, I'm going to reject you as, a, as an expert. Yeah, and I'll give you one example, Dr. Deicher's case. So Dr. Deicher <coughs> is herself someone who testifies in some anti-vaccine cases, but she had a personal tragedy after she's been anti-vaccine for a while. Her 13-year-old her child had cancer and died of it a year later. She brought her own case in the court claiming that her child's uh, cancer was caused by vaccine. And I, I won't talk about all her experts, but one of her experts was an expert who has a real expertise, but in plants. So he, his name is Dr. Donovsky. He, again, has expertise, but he has he's an expert in plant biology and he's here testified about cancer and vaccines nothing to do with what he actually has expertise on why did they pick him i don't know why he agreed to do it i don't know i have no reason to think he's not a serious expert in plant biology but this isn't plant biology no and, and this idea that you know as long as you've got the the initials dr in front of your name you're yeah. you're somehow qualified to, to speak on these topics is a very persistent one, despite the logical gaps in that thinking. Yes. Yeah, the Australia has uh, Dr. Vera uh, Scheibner, who is a micropalentologist. She may have been a great scientist when it comes to her field, but that doesn't prepare her to speak of it on vaccines. Yep. Uh, and, and that's why uh, she's on my list of uh, false authorities in, yes. in my infographics on, on that topic. In fact, I've got Teresa there as well and, and, and a whole bunch of others, as you probably know. And I, I think it's important to do that because, and, and I've, I've tried to do it as objectively as possible. Mm -hmm. I have no intention of demonizing people yeah. who um, set themselves up as vo vocal advocates of the anti-vax stance. Mm -hmm. But when someone with some kind of qualification misrepresents themselves in that way, presents themselves as some kind of expert in a field that they are not really expert on, or as a relevant qualification, but completely denies and refuses to accept the academic consensus or the scientific consensus on an issue that is well established. Yeah. I can't let that lie. And it is necessary to explain to people why these particular individuals are not credible yes. on the subjects of vaccination. Mm -hmm. Let's go back a few years to some of your own work. In 2014, you had an article published in the Cornell Journal of Law and Public Policy, mm -hmm. and it was entitled, Compensating the Victims of Failure to Vaccinate. What are the options? Yes. Can you summarize the argument and conclusion that you presented in this paper? In this paper, I asked if a family fails to vaccinate and their unvaccinated child infects 
someone else? Can the people infected sue the non-vaccinating families? That is a somewhat thorny tort question because normally there's no duty to act in favor of others. I think, I don't know if that's true in Australia, I suspect it is, but in the United States, the example I like to use in class is if you're sitting and sipping your Mai Tai and you see a baby crawl into the puddle and start to drown and you sit there and continue to sip your Mai Tai and don't help the baby, you may have been morally in the wrong, you've been horribly morally in the wrong, but legally you can't be sued because you don't have a duty to save others. So the question is, do unvaccinating parents have any duty? What was your, your conclusion then in, in that paper? My conclusion was that there's three ways to create a duty and, and there is a viable, if not easy, claim in those, in those cases. It has to be the right factual scenario, but that's also true, for example, for a car accident. Not all car accidents would lead to liability. But in the right factual scenario, I concluded that yes, you can have liability. Let's talk about vaccine mandates because they've become very topical in particularly in the last five years and especially in 2020 with the rise of coronavirus and the discussion about what happens when we eventually do get a vaccine. Yes. What is a vaccine mandate and what are the legal implications of such a policy? So a vaccine mandate, to put it simply, is a situation where you condition access to a public benefit or even a private benefit, because we talk about workplace mandate on getting a vaccine. So your employer can tell you, you want to work here, you have to get vaccinated. Uh, the state can tell you, you want to go to school or childcare, you have to get vaccinated. Or for example, you can say, you want to get a passport, you have to get vaccinated. So it's, think about it as conditional access. We're not holding you down and force vaccinating you, but if you don't do this, there will be consequences. So this then answers the, the, the next question I was going to bring up because anti-vaxxers love to talk about their opposition to compulsory vaccination or forced vaccination as they like to put it. And I was going to ask you what's the difference between compulsory vaccination and mandatory vaccination. You basically answered that already. As I understand it then, mandatory vaccination is a conditional yes. policy whereby in order to have access to certain benefits or participate in certain activities or enter certain spheres of public life, you are required to become vaccinated. It's a, it's a conditional policy. Whereas compulsory vaccination, of course, just says you're going to be vaccinated whether you like it or not. There are no conditions attached. It's going to happen. Yes. Now, I will point out that some of these conditions can have coercive effects. So I used to think that this distinction was stronger than I think it is now. Now I think it's a bit of a continuum. What's the level of coercion that we're using against you? For some people, the choice to send their child to school would, have, would feel very coercive at least. It's still a choice. It's not someone coming to your home and holding you, but it's a very hard choice. For some people, sometimes they don't have another job that they can do. So an, employ an employment mandate has very strong effect on them. But I still think there is a real difference between direct force, someone holding you, or even throwing you to jail, and this condition. In Australia, vaccine mandates are handled by state governments. I'm pretty sure the federal government doesn't actually have the authority to impose a nationwide mandate on vaccination. Similar to gun control in Australia, the federal government has no power to enact gun legislation at a, at a national level. It has to be delegated to the states. But in Australia, we do have, as a result of, of states getting their act together finally on mandates, we have very strict vaccine mandates right across the country from state to state, territory to territory. And as, as a result of this, we've got a vaccination rate nationwide approaching around 95%, which is pretty good. That's, um, right. that's certainly the, the target that our, um, our health service is aiming for. And that puts us well into the herd immunity threshold for most vaccine preventable diseases. The mandates have been ruled constitutional under Australian law. There are plenty of precedents for this, and it's basically impossible to argue otherwise. But how would you respond to someone in America who says, well, vaccine mandates are unconstitutional under American law because, say, they violate my, 
my religious beliefs or my strongly held views or they involve a level of coercion that is simply unconstitutional. How would you respond to that? Are there precedents in American law for vaccine mandates? I teach this. In the last hundred years, no court, state or federal, has struck down a vaccine mandate on constitutional grounds. I will say that some have been limited or even struck down at the lower court level on statutory grounds. But every court that looked at, at this, and this was mostly in the context of school mandates, found that vaccine mandates are constitutional. And in part, it's because school vaccine mandates fall in an area that protects two important interests. One is the interest of public health, but the other is the interest of the child. Because the risks of vaccines are smaller than the risk of not vaccinating, the risk of the child is usually to be vaccinated unless there's a medical exemption and we have those. So when parents are going to court and saying vaccine mandates violate my constitutional right, they're trying to say, I have a constitutional right to leave my child at bigger risk than uh, by not vaccinating them. And I have a, a constitutional right to force that same risk, not just on my child, but on my child's classmates. Courts aren't very sympathetic to that. No, that, that's a very valid point. Uh, the the knock-on effect of refusing to vaccinate, of course, its impact on community health, on the herd immunity threshold, etc. This is one thing mm -hmm. that, that's always puzzled me about anti-vaxxers. Their response, of course, is always the old favourite, I won't set my child on fire to keep yours warm, which is ridiculous, of course, because it presumes that the active vaccinating is so dangerous that it would harm my child uh, while somehow providing benefit to your child? I mean, the, the logic doesn't actually work when you start to look into it more closely. It's, it's a very poor uh, metaphor for the situation. If you want your child protected from a disease, I won't do that. Personally, it's not my duty to do that. And if I did do it, it would inevitably damage my child. Now, there are so many logical problems with that argument, quite apart from any evidence-based issues. And of course, that, that's, that's the big problem for anti-vaxxers. Yeah. But it gets back to a point you raised before, that morally, say, in your example of a, of a child in danger, morally, you might have a duty to act but legally you do not. This strikes me as pretty cold and, and quite bizarre under a legal system that I would have expected to support, say the sanctity of, of life and the freedom and the happiness of, mm -hmm. of, of all. The rationale of this is that what law tries to do is draw a principled line. And there isn't a good principled way to draw a line between requiring you to ask for the baby in front of you and requiring you to act for everyone around you. That's a concern, that if we impose a duty to act, we will be interfering, making everybody all their brother's keepers, and that's too high a burden. How far do we push that? That's, there are counters to that argument. It's a controversy. In the context of vaccines, the way I usually approach it is a threefold way. Point one, if the goal is to say, we protect your autonomy, you don't, you can, if you're a bystander, you don't have to step into a situation. That's not the choice not to vaccinate. The parents who don't vaccinate are not bystanders. They're in the situation. They're making an active choice. And in most places, they're making a choice they actually have to fight for. So the first point I'm saying is, this is not the normal non-action. This person is not a bystander. This is closer to action. The second point I, I, I make in counter to this is, we have exception to the rule that there's no duty to act. For example, parents can't refuse to uh, feed their children or help the children when they're in the tub because there's normally no duty to act because they have a special duty. We have other kinds of special duties. There's a lot of policy reasons to say you actually do have a special duty to vaccinate as well. And if you choose not to vaccinate, we won't come to your home and force you. But if your choice to reject expert opinion and leave your child at risk causes other people, you have to pay for it. Take what you want and pay the price. The third point is legislators can always change this balance. Courts don't want to draw that line, but the legislator can pass a law saying we are creating this duty. Legislators in the United States, for example, created a duty in some states for adults who see a minor drunk not to, not to give that minor a uh, drink, and maybe even to 
prevent that minor from driving. So that we do have uh, duties to act in some context. That's, that's a really helpful way of explaining it because it's more like what, what you referred to before, a, co a continuum of responsibility. And is it reasonable to impose that responsibility in such a way that it simply continues to slide up and, and slide up and slide up? Mm -hmm. Because that's inevitably what it would, it would result in exactly. if the argument was presented in court. I think you've, you've made a very good case about the relationship of responsibility in the context of vaccination because that has an immediate and obvious impact on everyone and their children and yet that can be differentiated from for example the liability to step in and, and help someone who's drowning even if you don't know how to swim or the more reasonable case of a bartender being in breach of the law if he continues to sell alcohol to someone who is clearly incapacitated and unable to drive. So anti-vaxxers, as we know, are fond of citing legal cases that allegedly prove the dangers of vaccination. Mm -hmm. And uh, RFK Jr., of course, has become infamous for launching lawsuits in which he attempts to prove that there is li greater liability than vaccine manufacturers are accepting, or that there is a causative link between the vaccines and some type of damage. What are the problems with the idea that vaccine injuries can be proved in a courtroom? And is the courtroom an appropriate place to determine whether or not vaccines are safe to what extent can science be proved in the courtroom? Okay, there's two parts of this. The first part is how do we comp how do we compensate people harmed by vaccines? We don't really have a good alternative to an adjudicatory system there. We really don't. That because that's the question of when do we impose liability is not just about the science. It's about how much doubt do we allow before we compensate? Uh, we may be willing to say we're willing to compensate people for alleged vaccine injury with a pretty low level of uh, certainty because vaccines are so beneficial, because we want to make sure that anyone that might be injured by vaccine is compensated. That's a value judgment. That's not a scientific question. Often we don't have scientific certainty on an issue. We still need to decide compensation, yes or no. So first of all, a lot of questions about causation end up in the court because that's how that's the way we decide compensation cases. And I, I think that's not necessarily a bad way. I mean, the alternative, so for example, New Zealand has a no-fault system for uh, accidental injuries. But even there, you have to show causation. You just do it before an administrative panel, a lot like the vaccine court. You have to somehow meet some standard of causation if you're going to compensate someone from harms alleged by a product. That's not a scientific question. That's a question of what society willing to pay for? How much doubt is it willing to pay for? What we need to be really careful is assuming that a court compensation is equivalent to scientific certainty, because it's not. And by the way, the other way as well, assuming that rejecting a case in court shows lack of causation is also tricky. Because for many years, people were bringing cases against tobacco companies and they lost case after case not because there wasn't a causal connection, but because the standard for design defects for a long time was, does consumer know about the risk? And at that point, people knew about the dangers of smoking. So they lost their cases. Doesn't mean that there wasn't a connection. Well, how, how, how we decide to compensate or not compensate victim is in many ways a question that has many facets and science is just one of them. And again, I think courts are reasonable mechanisms for that. How do we assess science is a different question, and we need to be really careful to separate out scientific knowledge from the compensation question. I think, for, to give you one example, a United States Department of Health and Human Services decided to put GBS from influ annual influenza vaccine on the table of injuries to say if you got Guillain-Barre syndrome for a certain time after your flu vaccine, we'll assume the vaccine caused it. There's no good data behind that. But the problem is, it's going to be almost impossible to get good data for uh, annual influenza vaccine because we change them every year. 
So the question is, you're going to have a, a scientific doubt there because you have a new vaccine every year. What do you do with the people that have this injury after the vaccine? Do you compensate them or not? The department decided to make a policy choice, we'll compensate them. That doesn't mean that there's a scientific connection. You still, sometimes science won't answer your question and you still have to decide yes or no to compensate. Courts aren't the right place to, to build scientific knowledge, but they are a decent place to build compensation, even if it makes our job harder because we have to explain that compensation doesn't mean scientific safety. That's a nice and nuanced response to what is very clearly a, a complex issue, yeah. particularly since there are a couple of cases that anti-vaxxers love to point to to say, well, this person was compensated in court for a vaccine injury of this particular type, which proves that vaccine must cause that injury. And one of their favorites is the Hannah polling case. They yeah. love to argue that in the Hannah polling case, it was proved conclusively in court that a vaccine caused Hannah polling to develop autism. What is your answer on that case? How would you explain that to the layperson? What was the actual finding of the court and what are its implications for vaccines? I would start by pointing out that Hannah Pauling case was never decided in court. It was never heard in court. The Department of Health and Human Services decided that it met the legal standards without going before a third party, without having to bring proof. Now you can say the department decided it met the legal standard, that's proof. But what's the legal standard here? They decided that the pollings showed that Hannah case showed the table injury, showed that she had a specific problem that's on the table in a certain time after the vaccine. So the legally, you have to assume that the vaccine caused it. They didn't even have to show the vaccine caused it. Hannah Pauling had a genetic disorder, and I don't think anyone challenges that, including her parents. The argument was that it was probably the vaccine that triggered a, a regression because of, so what the argument was, vaccines caused her fever. Her genetic disorder meant that any fever could cause her to regress, including, by the way, a fever from a disease. The vaccines triggered a fever, a fever the fever caused her to regress. That's the argument. They didn't have to show that though. All they had to show was that she had a regression within, I think, 15 days after the vaccine, and then causation was presumed. The reason this is important is that Hannah also had ear infections that can cause fever. And we're not sure whether her fever was vaccine-related, ear infection-related. We are sure that her genetic problem meant that she would probably regress between her first and second year from any stressor, from a fever, from a hot bath, etc. Hannah had a mitochondrial disorder, which is a problem in the cells that produce energy. But mitochondrial disorders are not all the same. According to what I've read, she had an unusually severe one, one of only, I think, four cases of the same kind of disorder. And children with that specific disorder all regressed within the first or second year. So again, we have a situation where, A, there was never a, there was never a case before a third party. B, the case was decided on a table injury where causation was presumed. The parent didn't have to show that the vaccine caused their harm. And C, it was acknowledged by everyone that she had a very rare genetic problem that predisposed her to regress from any stressor. The irony is that children with that disorders are at very high risk if they get, for example, measles. When anti-vaccine people use her case to scare people from vaccinating and increase the risk that measles will come into a community, they put children like Hannah at incredibly high risk because those are the children that really need high rates of vaccines. There's no good evidence that vaccines are super dangerous to children with mitochondrial disorder. There is a lot of evidence that a disease can be really bad for them. That's a complete explanation of the Hannah Pauling case. So thank you very much for that, Dora. And if I remember correctly, it wasn't actually proved that Hannah had autism. She had some form of regression, which as you say, she had she had a vulnerability to as a result of her genetic condition and the possible triggers, the fever, for example, could have been caused by the vaccine or could have been caused by another mechanism. 
So mm -hmm. it's it, the presumption was the vaccine based on on the current legislation. As mm -hmm. I understand, she was never actually diagnosed with autism. That's not even what the legal findings stated. So that's an important distinction as well. I, I'm just not sure about the, the, the autism diagnosis. I've read conflicting things. Yeah, it, it is a, a difficult one. I'm basing my conclusions on a number of analyses that I've that mm -hmm. I've read, and I I seem to remember having a, a quick look at well at some of the court documents. I just yeah, couldn't find a conclusive yeah. statement about. Yeah, the court documents talk about epilepsy with features of us, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't also a diagnosis at some point. Well, thank you very much for your time, Dorit. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to have you. Before I leave you, can you suggest someone that you think I should interview that the, the audience would benefit from hearing? Have you talked to Dr. Offit yet? I have not. You're only my second interviewee. I've interviewed Dr. Anna Zacherson, with whose work you're probably familiar, and you are second on my list. But Dr. Paul Offit sounds like a great choice. I don't know what my chances are of, of getting him. I don't know how busy he is, but I will give it my best shot. If you don't get to talk to, to, talk to Dr. Offit, uh, I would recommend Karen Ayers from Voices for Vaccines because she's been doing a lot of on the ground work, building up in the United States. And I know you have your own amazing people that's, build, that's been building grassroots, but she can talk a little bit about the challenge of building a grassroots organization in the United States. That would be fantastic. I'd, I'd love to interview her. Thank you very much again, Dorit. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you.